0: Are there places in this world where it is possible for one to walk into the past, where one might observe physical landmarks which no longer exist, see individuals long dead, and perhaps even interact with them? If so, the parkland adjacent to the Petit Trianon on the grounds of the Palace at Versailles might be one such place. This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to The Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and returned to tell the tale. These are their stories. On the 10th of August, 1901, while visiting the Palace of Versailles, two English schoolteachers of impeccable character and credentials, Miss Charlotte Moberly, the principal of St. Hugh's College at Oxford, and Eleanor Jourdain, her vice-principal, entered into one of the most intriguing and controversial adventures to ever be recorded in the annals of parapsychological investigation. After spending some time at the palace, the ladies decided to next visit the Petit Trianon, a smaller palace situated at the other end of the Versailles grounds, and although they had a map, they soon became lost. We walked for some distance down a wooden alley, Mr. Dane later wrote, and then came upon the buildings of the Grand Trianon. We went on in the direction of the Petit Trianon, but just before reaching what we knew afterwards to be the main entrance, I saw a gate leading to a path cut deep below the level of the ground above, and as the way was open and had the look of an entrance that was used, I said, Shall we try this path? It must lead to the house, and we followed it. To our right, we saw some farm buildings looking empty and deserted. Implements, among others a plow, were lying about. We looked in, but saw no one. The impression was saddening, but it was not until we reached the crest of the rising ground where there was a garden that I began to feel as if we had lost our way and as if something were wrong. There were two men there in official dress, greenish in color, with something in their hands. It might have been a staff. A wheelbarrow and some other gardening tools were near them. They told us, in answer to my inquiry, to go straight on. I remember repeating my question because they answered in a seemingly casual and mechanical way, but only got the same answer in the same manner. As we were standing there, I saw to the right of us a detached, solidly built cottage with stone steps at the door. A woman and a girl were standing at the doorway, and I particularly noticed their unusual dress. Both wore white kerchiefs tucked into the bodice, and the girl's dress, though she looked 13 or 14 only, was down to her ankles. The woman was passing a jug to the girl who wore a close white cap. Following the directions of the two men, we walked on, but the path pointed out to us seemed to lead away from where we imagined the Petit trianon to be and there was a feeling of depression and loneliness about the place. I began to feel as if I were walking in my sleep. The heavy dreaminess was oppressive. At last we came upon a path crossing ours and saw in front of us a building consisting of some columns roofed in and set back in the trees. Seated on the steps was a man with a heavy black cloak round his shoulders and wearing a slouch hat. At that moment, the eerie feeling which had begun in the garden culminated in a definite impression of something uncanny and fear-inspiring. The man slowly turned his face, which was marked by smallpox. His complexion was very dark. The expression was very evil, and yet unseen, and though I did not feel that he was looking particularly at us, I felt a repugnance to going past him. But I did not wish to show the feeling, which I thought was meaningless, and we talked about the best way to turn, and decided to go to the right. Suddenly, we heard a man running behind us, He shouted, mesdames, mesdames, and when I turned, he said in an accent that seemed to me unusual that our way lay in another direction. You shouldn't go there. He then made a gesture, adding, over here, look for the house. Though we were surprised to be addressed, we were glad of the direction, and I thanked him. The man ran off with a curious smile on his face. The running ceased as abruptly as it had begun, not far from where we stood. I remember that the man was young-looking, with a florid complexion and rather long dark hair. I do not remember the dress, except that the material was dark and heavy and that the man wore buckled shoes. We walked on, crossing a small bridge that went across a green bank high on our right hand and shelving down below as to a very small overshadowed pool of water glimmering some way off. A tiny stream descended from above us, so small as to seem to lose itself before reaching the little pool. We then followed a narrow path till almost immediately we came upon the English garden front of the Petit Trianon. The place was deserted, but as we approached the terrace, I remember drawing my skirt away with a feeling as though someone were near and I had to make room, and then wondering why I did it. While we were on the terrace, a boy came out of the door of the second building which opened onto it, and I still have the sound in my ears of his slamming it behind him. He directed us to go round to the other entrance, and seeing us hesitate, with a peculiar smile of suppressed mockery, offered to show us the way. We passed through the French garden, part of which was walled in by trees, The feeling of dreariness was very strong there and continued till we actually reached the front entrance to the Petit Trianon. The impression of dreariness returned to Miss Jourdain from time to time, but the two women did not speak of their strange experience until when, at least a week later, Miss Morberley asked, Do you think the Petit Trianon is haunted? Miss Jourdain quickly answered, Yes, I do. They did not speak of their experience again until three months later when Miss Moberly casually mentioned having seen a woman sitting on a seat on the lawn by the terrace of the Petit Trianon. Upon doing so, she was stunned to discover that the woman had not been seen by Miss Jourdain. The lady, Miss Moberly later wrote, was sitting holding out a paper as though to look at it at arm's length. I supposed her to be sketching. It seemed as though she must be making a study of trees, for they grew close in front of her, and there seemed to be nothing else to sketch. She saw us, and when we passed close by on her left hand, she turned and looked full at us. It was not a young face, and though rather pretty, it did not attract me. She had on a shady white straw hat, perched on a good deal of fair hair that fluffed round her forehead. Her light summer dress was arranged on her shoulders in handkerchief fashion, and there was a little line of either green or gold near the edge of the handkerchief which showed me that it was over, not tucked into her bodice, which was cut low. Her dress was long-waisted, with a good deal of fullness in the skirt, which seemed to be short. There was something unattractive about her expression, and after looking full at her, I suddenly turned away. The two ladies began to compare recollections of the day, and Miss Jourdain was surprised to learn that Miss Moberly had not seen the cottage with the woman passing a jug to the girl she remembered so clearly seeing, while Miss Moberly had seen two women Miss Jourdain had not seen, both the woman who appeared to be sketching and a woman shaking a white cloth from the window of another building miss moberly had also been struck by a feeling of extraordinary depression during the visit and a sense that there was an unnatural flat two-dimensional look to the landscape as though painted on canvas or worked in tapestry intrigued The ladies decided to independently write accounts of their experience and to learn everything they could about the area around the Petit Trianon. Searching for an explanation, Miss Moberly learned that the 10th of August, the day of their visit to Versailles, was the anniversary of the sacking of the Tuileries, The day the palace in Paris fell to the French Revolution and King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were arrested. She also learned from a friend living in Paris that she remembered hearing from friends at Versailles that on a certain day in August, Marie Antoinette is regularly seen sitting outside the garden front at the Petit Trianon with a light flapping hat and a pink dress. Moreover, the entire area around the Petit Trianon, the garden, the path by the water, and especially the hamlet, a small faux village built for Marie Antoinette, in which she and her court amused themselves by pretending to be country peasants, are peopled with those who used to be with her there. In fact, that all the occupations and amusements reproduce themselves there for a day and a night. On January 2nd, 1902, a cold and wet day, Miss Jourdain visited Versailles for a second time. She did not at first experience the eerie sensation she had felt during her visit in August. But, she later wrote, On crossing a bridge to go to the hamlet, the old feeling returned in full force. It was as if I had crossed a line and was suddenly in a circle of influence. To the left, I saw a track of park-like ground, the trees bare and very scanty. I noticed a cart being filled with sticks by two laborers, and thought I could go to them for directions if I lost my way. The men wore tunics and capes with pointed hoods of bright colors. One man wore red, a sort of terracotta red, and the other deep blue. I turned aside for an instant, not more, to look at the hamlet, and when I looked back, men and cart were completely out of sight and this surprised me, as I could see a long way in every direction, and though I had seen the men in the act of loading the cart with sticks, I could not see any trace of them on the ground, either at the time or afterwards. I did not, however, dwell upon any part of the incident that went on to the hamlet. The houses were all built near a sheet of water, and the old oppressive feeling of last year was noticeable, especially under the balcony of the Queen's house and near a window in what I afterwards found to be the dairy. I really felt a great reluctance to go near the window or look in, and when I did so, I found it shuttered inside. Coming away from the hamlet, I at last reached a building which I knew to be the smaller Orangerie. I turned back by mistake into the park and found myself in a wood so thick that though I had turned towards the hamlet, I could not see it. Before I entered, I looked across an open space towards a belt of trees to the left of the hamlet some way off, and noticed a man, cloaked like those we had seen before, slip swiftly through the line of trees. The smoothness of his movement attracted my attention. I was puzzling my way among the maze of paths in the wood, when I heard a rustling behind me, which made me wonder why people in silk dresses came out on such a wet day. And I said to myself, just like French people. I turned sharply round to see who they were but saw no one and then all in a moment I had the same feeling as by the terrace in the summer only in a much greater degree. It was as though I were closed in by a group of people who already filled the path coming from behind and passing me. At one moment there seemed to be really no room for me. I heard some women's voices talking French and caught the words, Monsieur et Madame" said close to my ear. The crowd got scarce and drifted away, and then faint music as of a band not far off was audible. It was plain, very light music with a good deal of repetition in it. Both voices and music were diminished in tone, as in a phonograph. Unnaturally, the pitch of the band was lower than usual, the sounds were intermittent, and once more I felt the swish of a dress close by me. I looked at the map which I had with me, but whenever I settled which path to take, I felt impelled to go by another. After turning backwards and forwards many times, I at last found myself back at the Orangery and was overtaken by a gardener. He had hair on his face. A grizzled beard was large and loosely made. His height was very uncommon, and he seemed to be of immense strength. His arms were long and very muscular. I noticed that even through the sleeves of his jersey. I asked him where I should find the Queen's Grotto. He told me to follow the path I was on, and in answer to a question, said that I must pass the Belvedere, adding that it was quite impossible to find one's way about the park unless one had been brought up in the place and so used to it that no one can deceive you. On my return to Versailles, I made careful inquiries as to whether the band had been playing there that day, but was told that though it was the usual day of the week, it had not played because it had played the day before, being New Year's Day. I told my French friends of my walk, and they said that there was a tradition of Marie Antoinette having been seen making butter within the dairy, and for that reason, it was shuttered. Over the next few years, the two ladies continued to research the Trianos' past in the hope of understanding what they had encountered. The obvious answer that they had seen actors or park attendants in period dress, was quickly ruled out. No park employees were dressed in the manner they had seen, and official records showed that no motion picture companies or theatrical productions had been given permission to work in the park on the days in question. But perhaps most intriguing of all, many of the physical landmarks they had seen The woods, the bridge, the ravine, the waterfall, and the kiosk did not exist in the Versailles of 1902. Could it be, they wondered, that they had not seen ghosts, but had actually somehow walked into the past? In 1911, they published a slim volume entitled An Adventure, an account of their experiences in Versailles, along with the research which they felt proved the authenticity of what they had seen. Through researching old maps, they found that everything they had seen, but which they had been told had never existed, had, in fact, existed during the time of Marie Antoinette in the exact positions in which they had described them. Everything, that is, but the small ravine they had crossed by means of a small bridge. In 1912, however, they learned that an original map of the Trino grounds, drawn by Richard Meek, the royal architect, had been discovered in the chimney of an old house. The map clearly showed a small ravine in exactly the same place as they had described it in an adventure. As time went on, the ladies were contacted by others who had had similar experiences at Versailles. One of the most intriguing, perhaps, was that of the Crook family, who lived in an apartment overlooking the Versailles grounds during the years 1907 and 1908. Although they saw from their apartment crowds of tourists arrive at the palace each morning, They rarely saw anyone inside the grounds. In 1908, they began to see people attired in 18th century clothing. Mr. Crook encountered a man wearing a small three-cornered hat, and both he and his wife encountered a woman in old-fashioned dress picking up sticks. Mr. Crook also reported, hearing phantom music, and seeing the cottage seen earlier by Miss Jourdain, with people in old-fashioned clothes looking out the window. On two occasions, he, his wife, and his son all saw the sketching lady described by Miss Moberly. On both occasions, she was dressed in a light cream-colored skirt, white fit shoe, and white untrimmed flapping hat. The skirt was full and ungathered, and the lady spread it round her. Both times she appeared to be sketching, holding out a paper at some distance as though judging of it. In 1974, I visited Versailles, spending almost all of the days of August ninth, 10th, and 11th, in the area of the hamlet, hoping to experience something along the lines of that experience by Miss Moberly and Miss Jordan, Although I did not experience anything out of the ordinary, I was told by a member of the staff at the Versailles Tourist Bureau that often visitors unaware of the haunting will stop by with tales of their having seen the ghosts of Marie Antoinette and her court. On the 10th of August, I encountered a European ghost aficionado with whom I retraced the route followed by the ladies 73 years before, and together we explored the hamlet where he felt the dairy to be particularly haunted. While the dairy windows were no longer shuttered, They had been fitted with leaded cobalt blue glass panes, which were so dark that I could not see anything within the building, leading me to believe that a ghostly woman had indeed often been seen within it, and that the cobalt glass had been installed in order to prevent future sightings. As the sun began to set that day, we found ourselves caught in a sudden rainstorm, and we fled for shelter into Marie Antoinette's grotto. From within the grotto, we distinctly heard footsteps above us. My companion quickly ran out of the grotto, but saw no one there. By now the gates to the park had closed, and the place was dark and deserted. After the rain had stopped, we found our way in the darkness to the park gate, where, with great embarrassment, we explained our predicament and we were escorted out by a park official. The initial publication of An Adventure created a great deal of public interest and set off a controversy which is yet to be settled. Negative criticisms of An Adventure were quickly published. Most of these criticisms were, to my mind, overly simplistic in their assumptions and cavalier in their attitude, accusing the highly accomplished Jourdain and Moberly of bad memories, overactive imaginations, and poor research. Over the years which followed, much ink continued to be spilt in an attempt to explain away both the experience and the research presented in an adventure. Although much of the criticism was by serious and objective commentators, I cannot help but think that some of the more hostile criticism had its origin in resentment toward two women who had achieved prominence in the academic world during a time when such achievement was thought by most to be the sole domain of men and a prejudice against two women whom, it was whispered, were lovers. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of Haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of everything you ever wanted to know about ghosts, but we're Afraid to Ask by Mark Lyon, and San Francisco Ghosts by Mark Lyon, and Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Gray Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Gray Ghost Book, and Let Castle, The House of Horrors by Mildred Darby, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and *Natalie*, a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei.